Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Look at what your uh, look at what your faithful giving has has wrought. Um, it's not going to fall down. It won't be on next year's blooper reel. We haven't exactly been in a in a vision series per se. It hasn't been that explicit. But you may have noticed that in January, we've been just sort of talking around the idea of of what knack might look like going forward. What are what are the words? that define us? Uh, how has COVID disrupted how we you know, do church? And, and could it be that even this disruption is, is a, a bit of a gift? You know, it forces us to ask kind of questions about what is truly important. Um, is maintaining our regular Sunday service liturgy of four songs and a, announcements and a sermon and a closer what we really ought to be fighting for? Or is there something richer, deeper, more profound. So, so I've been thinking about this concept for a while. Um, today is not so much a sermon. I don't know what today is. It's, it's on my heart a lot. I've been thinking about it a lot. I owe it to this lady, Wendy Vanderwall, for introducing it to me. I think she borrowed it from Alan and Deborah Hirsch, and I think they borrowed it or amended it from social sciences and applied it to the church. Regardless, this is not my theory so much as, as someone else has articulated something that I, I have been thinking about and sort of intrinsically felt but didn't have the terminology for. And this was an eye-opening kind of aha moment for me. And some of you are going to look at this and go, well, Duh, yeah. But others might have their world rocked a little bit the way I did. So whether we consciously know it or not, we, we tend to see the world through these lenses or models. We, we see the church through sort of specific lenses or models. And so here's the first uh, new terminology for me. Most Christians see the world through um, what we'll call uh, a bounded set. I shouldn't say see the world. They see the church through what is a bounded set. And, and what that means is um, people come together and they are um, identified, you could say, by their strong boundaries. You know, it determines kind of who is in the group and who is out of the group, okay? So we, we think of this in terms of maybe the big C church, and, and, and we can have really clear lines, can't we, about who is in and who is out. And it's usually defined by, well, I'll call the three, the three Bs, you know, your belief, your behavior, 
And if you've got the right beliefs and the right behavior, then you get to belong to the in-group. Um, if you believe certain things, if you behave a certain way, you belong as long as you stay kind of within these walls of acceptability. Now, is there a lot of diversity of, of thought and behavior to belong in here? Not really, right? In fact, if your beliefs start changing about something, um, infant baptism, for instance, premillennial versus postmillennial eschatology, uh, the earth was created in six literal 24-hour days versus maybe that was more of a, of a poetic device but not strictly literal. If you start changing, your beliefs start diverging, what happens usually? Conflict, right? And it usually ends up that these people have to go and start another church because the beliefs and the Behavior starts to be different. Ever wonder why we ended up with so many denominations, thousands of them? Because we couldn't all agree on the same thing. And then, of course, you know, these people, uh, the new church split people, have to maintain their own new boundaries, uh, their own bounded set of beliefs and behavior to determine who belongs to them so they can distinguish themselves from the other church down the street. And, uh, you know, they want, they want to make sure they're not confused with this church who has it all wrong, right? So, so not only is there not a lot of room for diversity in there, you could say it's kind of all about conformity. Uh, now, hear me. I'm not even saying that this is inherently bad. Okay, because if there's any group of people who believe in an objective truth, it should be Christians, right? I mean, Jesus laid it out. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, talk about clear boundaries. Um, we know kids need boundaries on some level Kids crave boundaries. There was this experiment uh, that was done, maybe you heard about it, where kids at recess or in a park uh, were allowed to play in this limitless space. You know, there was no fences, no boundaries. What did they do? They ended up huddling together in the middle and, and kind of playing close together. Well, then fences were added to that same space. Wouldn't you know it? The kids explored every aspect of that playground right up to the fences. It, it was as though their comfort went through the roof once they had these clear boundaries. So don't get me wrong. I'm not totally disparaging every aspect of this model um, depending on the context and the age. There are even noble parts of this model. Maybe the problem comes down to that word that I just used, uh, comfort. Uh, once we have our clear, bounded ideology and theology, it's, it's much more just comfortable, you know, to know who is in and who is out. If I, if I have the right beliefs and right behavior, what is accepted and what isn't, I think 
fundamentalism for all its rules and its strictness might actually be easier. You know, the traditions are laid out, the parameters are clear. You don't have to think too hard about it. To be spirit-led, to be open-handed, to be grace-filled, to not hold our certainty so tightly about everything, you know, that means a lot more wrestling and contemplating and sometimes even getting it wrong. Now, within our own church, we probably have a diversity of, of beliefs and behavioral choices. Let's say alcohol. Um, we, we would say that's probably a matter of conscience for the individual. And maybe, maybe we'll even give a little more leeway for diversity of, of beliefs. But in some churches, certain behaviors are not tolerated. Um, you can't belong with certain behaviors. Now, one of the few things we know about our mission as a church from scripture, and I say few things because it doesn't say much about what songs to sing or a lot about what kind of governance to have or whether to rent or lease or own or even have a building. It does say that we are to go into the world and make somebody say it. Yay, Chris knows. Disciples. Hope I spelling right. Um, we think of that as an evangelistic verse. It's really a discipleship verse. And discipleship is more all-encompassing of our mission as a church. But what we do in this model is we, we tend to send these people, you know, from the in to the out, you know, to drag these heathens back in, you know, get them all cleaned up and then send them out into get the heathens and bring them back in like that. And, uh, you know, we'll call them missions programs or, or evangelism programs. And, you know, our task is to get these people who have a different set of bees, beliefs and behaviors and belonging and clean them up, bring them in. And so that they're, they're not behaving like they used to or believing what they used to. And, and, uh, and so we want them inside where they believe the right things and behave the right way and they belong to us now. And I know I'm, I'm oversimplifying this and maybe even being a bit um, cheeky, but you know, this seems kind of familiar, doesn't it? A bit of an evangelical assembly line, you know, draw them in, get them cleaned up, send them out so they draw others in. So this might be the prevailing model of church, at least in the West, and maybe the prevailing model of how you see church. And the question is, is this a biblical model? Or maybe, um, maybe the, a more fair way to put it is, is there truth in this model? Of, co of course there is. But could it be that this model is 
is missing something really important. I would even say that while there's, there's truth in it, in my reading of, of the Gospels, uh, it's this model that seems to be critiqued by Jesus. Because at its worst, this model, uh, it lends itself to being religious people, okay? The Pharisees of our day. And it's a model that bases so much uh, on what we do, on externals, on measuring up, you know, behaviors, checklists, rules. You Pharisees, Jesus said, you know, you, you have it down pat. You know the scriptures. Uh, you know them better than everyone. Your, your behavior is uh, unassailable. You are the most morally upright. Your behavior is dang near perfect. But Jesus says something is rotten and dirty on the inside. You know, people saying the right things and doing the right things and even believing the right things does not necessarily mean they are living the way of Jesus. We just assume that. And Jesus would tell these parables where the good crop and the weeds uh, would grow up together and one day we'd find out, oh, you guys who thought you were in are actually on the out and, and those people that we thought were out were actually in. Why? Because Jesus looks at the heart. Now, um, I'm just going to pull this a little closer. There's a, there's a different model. It's called the centered set the centered set model. And in this model or theory, people who are gathered actually gather not around boundaries, but around a a core values and they're strong. Uh, They're so strong. In fact, they act like a a magnet that, that draws people together you know, not boundaries that keep people out, but more of a, a central core that draws people toward it. Now, um, does that make sense? Y'all know what I'm going to say here, right? I would suggest the center, the core of who we are as a church and as believers, that magnet for us has to be around the person and the work of Jesus. Somebody write amen in the comments, okay? He is our magnet, you could say. And so we put Jesus at the center. And instead of having walls or fences or boundaries around Jesus, you could say it looks looks more like this. Um, A spiral that is uh, from and to Jesus. And every person, I think we can safely say, every person in the world, on the planet, is somewhere in relation to Jesus, right? Now, they may seem close, they may seem far, they may seem, quite frankly, off the map sometimes, but I think we can safely say everyone is in some 
relationship or in some relation to Jesus. And they may be close, they may be miles away. They may, in our minds, seem irredeemably far away. Like uh, they're not even on the map, but they are somewhere. So um, people all across the world, all across South Lake, uh, people that we come in contact with, the, the barista at Starbucks is somewhere in relation to Jesus. Uh, the, the coach of our kids' team is somewhere in relation to Jesus. Our neighbor in Holland Landing, somewhere in relation to Jesus. Your nephew, they are somewhere. And of course, I don't mean Jesus is, you know, far geographically. In fact, we know that, you know, like, we know Jesus is this close. And, and all we have to do sometimes is just turn our head slightly, you know, quarter inch to the right and realize that he's been there the whole time. And our eyes are opened and everything changes. There he is. There he always was. This is more about where they are oriented. You know, are they facing towards him? Are they facing away from him? You know, somebody who seems very close to Jesus based on behavior and what we see may actually be kind of oriented away from Jesus. Whereas somebody who just seems irredeemably far may actually be on a journey oriented towards Jesus. We, we don't know. And a lot of people look like they're far. Um, but maybe they're closer than we think. Others who look like they're close to Jesus based on their behaviors uh, are actually oriented away. And so we go out into the marketplace and into the hockey rinks and into the schools and we are to disciple people. Now check this out. This kind of blew my mind. Does the Bible make a distinction between discipling believers or unbelievers? You know, does it make a distinction between discipling the folks who are in versus the folks who are out? I, I don't think it does. I have for most of my life reserved discipleship for those who have, you know, declared their orthodox beliefs and come to church. I'm not sure I can make a biblical case for that anymore. The idea that we only disciple people who have prayed a specific prayer, who we've all agreed are part of the in-group, um, I don't think that's how it works. Maybe this is a better way to think about it. And this is a, a term that uh, Alan Hirsch sort of coined, you know, that we are discipling the pre-converted and the post-converted. Lots of new way of looking at things. The pre-converted and the post-converted. Um, I know there are some of you who had like a real Damascus Road type experience. You had this existential moment, a time where you made a conscious decision and you made an about face from the life that you were living and you started 
living for Jesus on that day. Man, I love, I love those stories. The truth is, uh, for most people, the journey towards the center is not that dramatic. It's a lot slower. This isn't a new idea, by the way. This is how C.S. Lewis put it in his masterwork, uh, Mere Christianity. He says, the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves that by name. Some of them are clergymen. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. So so even if you became a Christian as a child, like, like I did, the journey towards a more steadfast faith. There's, there's your word of the year, Keith West. Your journey towards maturity and intimacy with Jesus. You know, it has peaks and valleys. It, it's this process of, you know, one step back and two steps forward, right? The art of being the church, of, of living on mission with people is is sometimes it just takes time, a lot of it. I, I have been part of churches that have sent people to share their life, to share the gospel with the people of predominantly Muslim nations. Now, the people we send certainly know this, but I, I, I hope the sending churches are prepared for the investment of years and years and be prepared still not to see the kind of results that churches typically measure. Now, discipleship is gonna look different for the believer and the unbeliever, for the pre-converted and the post-converted. And in fact, seeing as we don't know the hearts of people, and only God can judge our motives and, and uh, the destiny of others. Um, shouldn't we be using this lens of, maybe we shouldn't use the lens of who's in and who's out. And you may be asking yourself, like, how does one even disciple a pre-convert? Maybe you don't start with tithing, for instance. Um, what if we started with the Imago Dei, that everyone is created in the image of God, that, that you have purpose and dignity and value, that you are created in God's own image and maybe start with God's plan for restoring beauty and truth and justice. Um, you think of people like Cassandra, at Bridge North, Jackie at TLC, when they work with the women from those respective agencies, do you not think that they are discipling these girls? Now, whether or not a prayer of salvation is prayed, discipling is happening. It's starting. Seeds are being planted. And so until that day, our job is to keep loving them. And I'd say even if you can't pick the fruit, uh, at least don't bruise it. Uh, you may have to think about that one for a minute. Now, discipling the post 
converted. Uh, I suppose that's more like Imago Christi, okay? You could say we're helping others conform to the image of Christ, closer to the image of Christ. It's where we can be a little more pointed, hold each other a little more accountable, where discipling means we hold people to Christ-like standards. I, I don't know if, about you, do, does that not take the pressure off a little bit? People's souls do not have, have never depended on us, on our work. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw people to me. And so if we lift Jesus up, we don't have to draw people. Jesus acts like a magnet and he just draws people to himself. Here's a question for you. Um, at what point did the disciples, yes, those disciples, those 12, cross over from the out to the in? Um, have you always assumed that they were in? I mean, read the Gospels. Talk about wrong belief, wrong behavior. The same disciples who denied Jesus, the same disciples who Jesus had to say sometimes, get thee behind me, Satan. Same disciples who Jesus said, are you guys ever gonna get this stuff? They got to live with the incarnate, embodied Lord. And, and when did they ever cross over? When did they say, the sinner's prayer. I, I'd suggest it wasn't as clear as sort of crossing over from out to in. I, I think it might've looked something closer to this. So what was it about Jesus? The only sinless person who ever lived. What was about his type of holiness that, um, that drew people to him, that magnetized uh, and drew the, the hurting and the rejected and the messed up, the broken. They actually wanted to be around him. They were drawn to him. And what is it about the kind of holiness that Christians often embody that can have the equal and opposite effect of actually repelling people, shaming people, judging people, the kind of witness that would make some people avoid church at all costs. Um, maybe because a lot of our good news is about belief and behavior and being on the ends, a kind of moralism instead of holiness, a religious uh, self-help, if you will. The type of holiness here that Jesus embodies, you know, it was the type of holiness that is able to hang with everybody. The guy who seems irredeemably far away, uh, a holiness willing to get his hands dirty. You know, that model um, is what compels me. This model is kind of wants things nice and tidy. This model's messy. There's no doubt about it. But it's the, it's the life that Jesus 
lived, redemptive engagement, life with the lepers and the sex workers and the outcasts. I, I can't tell you how many times I have invited people to belong before they believe. Inviting the bass player and the lap steel guitar player who joined various worship teams and then witnessed Christian love and community and were even so drawn by the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of Jesus that they crossed the line of faith. And I think of the people that we included in, on our teams to Cambodia and Guatemala who were, who were first actually just compelled by the mission the desire to help those in need, but then later we're drawn in by this sense of belonging, of, of teamwork, a sense of doing good in the world, even before they had given themselves over to the source of all goodness found in Jesus. And then in time, found Jesus. We're magnetized towards him. We're so compelled by him. They became devoted to God. And, and one of those team members is now an elder in my former church, a youth leader. I think of my folks in London, just living beside their neighbors, serving them, loving them, treating them with dignity, inviting them in. Some, not all, but some, um, after years of observing, uh, asking questions, getting deeper, um, most of all, having the spirit of God draw them have, have crossed the line of faith. And we've seen their life transformed and their future secured. It was years in the making. And it didn't involve holding signs on a street corner saying, turn or burn, the end is near. My wife, Vicky, is good at this. She just opens her life to those around her in her workplace um, they're intrigued by her. They, they ask questions. I think of Chris and the Stosky family who have been like a neighborhood parish in Holland Landing. Nothing preachy, but loving. Whether they knew it or not, were discipling their neighbors. Um, I'll close with this. And uh, this is the picture or illustration that resonates most with me. Maybe I should have... I should have even started with it. But here's how you might want to view this. Um, there was a, a tourist who went to Australia and was looking at the, at the sheep farmers. And there's all kinds of space in Australia, as you know. And the tourist was interested in, in why there was no fences anywhere. He asked the farmer, how, how do you keep control of these sheep. There's no fences anywhere. And here's what the farmer said. He said, we don't build fences. We build a well and the sheep don't wander very far. Jesus is living water, isn't he? Uh, I would encourage us to dig wells, not fences. Lift Jesus up. And when the sheep wander, and guess what? Sheep will wander. They won't wander very far because they know where the source of water is. They know where the source of life is. Amen?